Heavenly Father, thank you for the worship this morning. The fellowship and the prayer. Thank you for the provision of a building and the talents and services and gifts of those who have devoted themselves to making this event possible and our opportunity to worship together. So meaningful. And Father, all of these things have been done under the guidance of your Spirit and our call by Him to give our lives as a worship to you. And we thank you, Father, that there's been men and women who've answered that call in obedience this morning and continue to lift up and sustain this fellowship. Father, we ask that we study this morning in truth and in spirit with an open heart and an open mind. Father, let us let this lesson be written for our benefit. Let us hear it from that perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes our life's problems are a lot less complicated and difficult to solve than we think they are. Sometimes they're just not that hard to figure out. There was a time when a couple was in a restaurant and the restaurant was a five-star top quality restaurant and the man is sitting at the table eating his meal and he's about halfway through it when he looks at the potato that was on the plate and he he, he calls the waitress over and he says this potato's bad and the waitress leans over looks at the plate picks it up and then proceeds to smack the potato <laughs> hands it back to the man and he's aghast he doesn't know what to say he stares at it and looks at her and then she leans over and she says, if that potato gives you any more trouble, just let me know. <laughs> Not that hard, is it? Simple problem, easy to solve. James gives us an equally easy answer in a way to, to the problems of a church that quarrels. That was the way the chapter opened. Remember verse 1? What are the source of the quarrels and conflicts? He's, he's talking here about a body of believers that are not getting along, that have issues in the body. And he says the problem with this church, or with any church that's falling in this pattern, is really quite simple. The problem is that we quarrel because we have lustful flesh. We have desires that are ungodly, unholy. And we fight with each other because we each want what we want in some context. Usually it sounds godly, right? It's the fight over what the building should look like in the new building campaign, or whether the pews should be in a circle. or in a, you know, We have all of these things we'll get wrapped up around. But at the end of the day, James says, it's really about our lust, wanting to get what we want. And then he says, we want these things without even bothering to ask God if that's what he wants, what he would have us do. So we don't ask, we don't pray. And then James went on to say, and even when we do pray, sometimes we don't get what we pray for because we don't pray with the right motive. Our motive is still to get what we want. So our prayer is nothing more than, Father, give me what I want. And so he he answers with no as a good father will. And James says those are worldly motives. We're acting like the world rather than like the Christian that we are to be. And God is a jealous God, James says. He won't share us with the world. And so he's not going to give us what we want when what we want is the world. And he knows what's best. I like the fact that God is a much better father than we typically are. Our children can ask us for the same thing over and over again. And in many cases, we eventually give in just because we're tired of the asking. And in God's case, he's a perfect father, so he never makes that mistake. So when our requests, our prayers are going ignored, and when our experience in the body of Christ in fellowship is one of quarrels or discontent in some form, we ought to ask ourselves, are we in the midst of this pattern? Did we unknowingly fall into this pattern and we're actually living out James 4 in the negative way? We're the one who's got a lust or a desire that's worldly. We're trying to get our way. We're following this pattern. That's the point of the teaching, right, is to alert us to the problem. And now as we move forward in the text, James turns to exhorting us, to, to teaching us to follow a better path. 
So if the problem was set up in verses 1 through 5, now we're going to turn and we're going to hear what James says should, should be the solution. Here's how we respond to this problem. In verse 5, which I covered last week, James says, God demands in us perfect allegiance, perfect obedience. He will not share us with the world. It's one or the other. Which then gives rise, I hope, to a question in all of us. How do we do that? How do we remain perfectly devoted to God? We don't remain perfectly devoted to anything except maybe ourselves. So how is it we're going to do this thing that James says is God's expectation and ultimately is the solution to the quarreling? Well, James gives us the answer then in verses 6 through 10. He begins, he says, but he, or God, of course, he gives a greater grace. And therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So that's the answer. And it doesn't sound very encouraging at first, does it? And, and perhaps because it seems hard to put into practice. But look at what he's actually saying. James says God gives a greater grace. Greater than what? Well, God's grace, he is saying, is greater than our failures in remaining devoted to him. In other words, the problems we have in trying to remain devoted to God and to turning our back on the world, that problem, God gives a greater grace, a grace that is more powerful than that problem, than our tendency to pull away. When the world pulls us away with whatever it is the world offers and we think is great, God's grace can be stronger than that, can strengthen us, in other words, in the face of those trials. Let me explain how James says that works, starting in verse 6. He says there's a simple but powerful principle that God uses to help us through those circumstances. It begins with, he frustrates the proud. He frustrates them. And this is in the context of believers. To the believer who in pride does what we just described in verses 1 through 5, I want what I want. That pattern, which then leads to quarrels and all the rest, that pattern is a prideful pattern. You've got to remember, the word pride is a big word in the Bible. We think of it in a narrow way sometimes. Feeling good about yourself or being vain. That's how we typically think of pride. The Bible uses it much more broadly than that. To the Bible, proud is the opposite of submitted to God. In all sense of the word, every context you can imagine. If I am my own man, I made myself, I'm in charge of my life, I'm controlling my life, no one tells me what to do. Okay, that is the biblical definition of pride, and it is a sin. James says, God delights, that's my word, but I think it's implied, God delights to frustrate exactly that Christian, showing them that their pride gains them nothing but frustration over time. But to the one, he says, who is humble, God will give grace there. Grace means the unmerited favor of God to contend with or to handle these challenges in life. They'll actually succeed against these frustrations because they're humbling themselves and putting themselves at God's disposal. Another way to say it is this. If we resist his will, then he brings our resistance to futility. But when we recognize we are weak and we are powerless and we are unable to do these things that God expects, this, this putting aside of the world and accepting God's will in place of it, when we recognize, you know, God, I just am not very good at that, he steps into that gap 
And he strengthens us and he directs us according to his will because he recognizes we are ready to lean on him rather than on ourselves. It's just that simple, but it's really, really tough. Humbling yourself, getting to the point where we don't see ourselves as control is really tough. There's a story that Heather Jamison, it's actually out on the Verse by Verse Ministry website, she tells this interesting story one day of they were in their garage in Dallas and a hummingbird flew into the garage. Now, the garage door was open, but you know how garages are built, right? The opening of the door stops short of the ceiling. There's a gap between the ceiling and the top of the door. Well, the hummingbird got into that space, and they wanted it to get out, of course, to help it out. But it flew up high enough that it couldn't see the door opening anymore. It only saw the ceiling, and it kept bumping against that gap between the ceiling and the door. And they were looking at this bird, wondering, when is it going to finally figure out that if it, if it just dropped down a little bit, it could find its way out? And an hour went by, and they tried to shoo it out, and it couldn't couldn't get it to go where it was supposed to go. And as Brian and, and Heather were watching this happen, Heather says, you know, it just can't figure out that in order to go up, it needs to go down first. And Brian said, you know, that's Philippians 2. She said, Philippians 2? He says, yeah, Philippians 2. Paul says that. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Brilliantly, Brian saw in that small moment of life this perfect example of a Philippians 2 principle that If we're going to be exalted, if God's going to lift us up in every sense of the word, not just in the eternal sense, but in the day-to-day sense, if he's going to strengthen us to deal with these kinds of challenges in the body of Christ, we first have to realize we aren't going to do it in our own power. Just like that little bird who was determined to find its own way out. An hour went by, Brian says, a second hour went by, the bird was still going at that wall. Eventually, Brian got a rake and caught it up against the wall with this rake. And then got his hand under the rake and grabbed the bird. Now, one thing I didn't know, and he didn't know at the time, hummingbirds play dead when they're threatened. So at the moment his hand went on the bird, he literally went totally limp and dead. And he took him completely out of the, the garage and set him down on the driveway, thinking as soon as he let go, the bird would take off. But it didn't. It just, it just sat there. Didn't move a muscle. And they just watched it. And they thought, when is this bird going to move? And after a while, they just thought, maybe he's dead. So they went up and they touched it. And as soon as they touched it, he took off. But the whole time he was playing dead. And even in that, you see another picture of Philippians 2. We have to die in Christ so that God may bring us down with Christ and then exalt us with him as well. There's a beautiful picture in that. And that story, as I said, is out on our website. But that's what James is talking about. The first step, if you really want to get past this pattern he's describing in the church and in our own lives, is a starting point of submitting to God. Folks, submission to God is really very simple. It is a hard attitude which then leads to obedience. It's not the same as obedience. But obedience to God comes out of a heart that says, I'm submitted to his will. His will, not my will. Your wish is God, not my wishes. And James is saying there is a choice before each of us. Failing to submit to God's will is the same as seeking after the world. Because that's what the world does. That's what it means to be of the world. Failing to submit yourself to God. But when we set aside the world and we give no attention to those priorities and we take God's will as our will, that's the first step to submission. Now, from that point of view, we can now live out a life of obedience. That's the prerequisite. So where do we find God's will? 
first and foremost in his word. I mean, that's why we give so much time to this every Sunday, right? This is why I'm not up here giving you story after story, joke after joke, and three-point sermons, because that doesn't help anybody. It's in here that you find God's will. So when you submit to God's will in his word, you are putting yourself in a position to be living a life differently than the world lives it. So we're supposed to read it. We're supposed to heed it. I think that's actually the context of verse 7. If you look back at the verses we've read already this morning, in verse 7, when he says, first, submit, therefore, to God, and then he says, resist the devil, that is really, I think, in the context of God's word, or at least primarily in that context. Think about, first of all, the enemy. The enemy's work is principally, in the body of Christ, a work of distorting and twisting God's word, or causing us to disregard it altogether. Think about the woman in the Garden of, uh, of Eden. The principal method he used with her was to get her to misunderstand God's word, and then he turned it as a way to get her to do what he wanted. So the key in our focus on God's will is to be focused on his word, which is the manifestation of his will for God's people. People talk about, well, the Bible's good, but I have all these other books that are good for me too. I like these authors. I like these books. Okay, fair enough. God works through men, and there's going to be other sources of, of helpful information. That, but... When God set out to write this, he wrote every word, right? That's our faith in in Scripture. God wrote every word through men. And he stopped when he had said everything he wanted to say. If there was anything left to say of any value to us, it would already be here. So by definition, this is all we need. He stopped when it had everything we needed. Now, the question remains, if we've only given ourselves over to knowing a part of it, then we stop and go looking for other sources of information, why would you give up this until you knew everything that was in it, if that were even possible, and seek anything else? It just it makes no sense. You give up the better thing for the, the less complete thing? I mean, we wouldn't normally do that in any other context. Why would we do it here? So James says, submit, therefore, to God, which I believe means, at least in part, understand and follow God's word. And then he says, resist the devil. Now, when we think resist, we think of some active effort on our part, some fleshly effort on our part which is partly true. There is an active component to this, certainly. We don't do it just by thinking. But the word in Greek, anthestomai, is the word for, for resist. Anthestomai. It means literally take a stand against. Take a stand against the devil. So take a stand against his schemes. Take a stand against the worldly sources of wisdom that he offers us. Take a stand against his principles and desires. Take a stand by remaining in God's word and consulting that place for truth. And and take a stand by then knowing it and following it. That's what he's saying. Take a stand. In other words, what he's really saying is take a step of preparation. Consider what armies do. If you're in battle, if you have an enemy and you're going to battle the enemy, when does an army prepare for that battle? Do they wait until they're in the middle of combat and then that's the moment to suddenly get ready for it? No, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. You do not go into battle, then decide I'm going to prepare for this battle. Before there is ever a battle, you are working in a preparation process of battling with one another in friendly combat or uh, in study and practicing of drills and, and reviewing your orders and doing all the things you need to do so that when the battle does arrive, you're ready for it. That's the process of being prepared for battle. If our enemy is the devil, his desire is to battle us to a point where we are no longer effective in our witness and our, and our following of God. Then when those moments come, if that's the moment we decide in the middle of the crisis is the moment we decide that we need to get into this and figure out what to do in the middle of our crisis, we are acting just like that soldier who gets into the trenches and there's a shooting war going on. And then they figure out now, would someone teach me how to use this rifle, please? It's absurd, right? But we do that in our Christian walk if we're not careful. We look at the crisis moments as the time to get into God's word or to be in fellowship 
How many people join churches after a crisis? That's exactly the pattern. It's this thought of now I need to catch up. And, and it's better to do it than to not do it. Don't get me wrong. But it's just a lot harder. Christians don't prepare for battles with the enemy by waiting until the moment of combat. You've got to practice righteousness before you can live it. And then Paul says the same thing, in fact, in Ephesians. This is what he says in Ephesians 6. You know these verses, but listen to them now in this context of the discussion we have here. Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist, listen, in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. It's all about preparation. And when he says put on the full armor of God, he elaborates later in the, on that chapter about what he means. But at its core, it's about the truth of the gospel informed by the f- truth of Scripture standing firm in that understanding, and then you go into the day of battle, he says. So let's review what James has said up to this point. He says, quarrels in the body will end when we seek God's grace to overcome our wandering hearts. And we do that by humbling ourselves, submitting to God's will, and then taking a stand against the enemy when he tries to pull us back into the world's desires. Then fourth, James says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. The term draw near is a very specific phrase. It actually comes out of Leviticus. It's a Jewish phrase. Remember, this this whole letter was written to Jews who were Christians in the first century. They understood this phrase, draw near to God. It meant come to worship. Come to worship. It's the term that was used in Levitical priesthood of of the law in, in the nation of Israel to call Jews into the house of worship. That's what James is saying here when he says draw near to God. It is not a reference to be more pious, that we draw near to God when we start to put on all this outward religiosity. I draw near to God by being in church more often or being the kind of person who looks more churchy in my life. That's not drawing near to God. That's just pretending. (laughs) That's just showing something outwardly. It means to engage in regular, communal, continual worship of God, both personal and corporate worship of God. And I want to reiterate, he is not talking about a place or an event. This is not about show up at church on Sunday more often. That is not his point. Although that's not a bad way to get started. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. But I'm just saying that's not the full extent of what he's saying here. Drawing close to God or worshiping God in that sense is a daily activity. It is a daily form of living that he's talking about. We want to join together periodically in worship because that's when we have the the best opportunity in most cases to engage in an outward expression of our faith, to encourage one another and to do all the wonderful things that God has made possible in the body of Christ. But 90 minutes once a week is not worshiping God. If we think 90 minutes in some building once a week is worshiping God, we we have the narrowest understanding of what that phrase means. And certainly we don't have the full appreciation of what James is asking for here. In reality... This weekly event is actually your training event to prepare you to go out of here and to do battle on a daily basis with the enemy or in in general with the world. And it's in the way you respond out there that you are worshiping or not. This is just your training. It's the same as the analogy of the army I used a minute ago. At the end of the day, we call our armies successful for how they deal with the battle on the battlefield, not for how well they train back at 
sport or camp, whatever. Those experiences are preparation. At the end of the day, they're just a means to an end. But the end is, how did you do in battle? Similarly, once a week, if you show up here regularly, sing real loud and pray a lot, and that's all great, but all it's doing is making you good at training. And then the test comes when you leave the door, and that's when James is saying, draw near to God. Be in that continual worshipful mindset as you face whatever God brings you in your week. That worship outside the building is far more important than whatever goes on in here. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. I'll read the first two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Did that not just sound like James chapter 4? He says, draw near to God means patterning your life in a worshipful way, so that everything you do is an outward sign of worship. And Paul and James said, doing that is the opposite of conforming yourself to the world. So when you act like the world acts, when we want what they want, enjoy what they enjoy, think that what they think is right, We have just turned our back on God. We're no longer submitting. We've moved out of that state. We're no longer worshiping. Even if you go to church on Sunday, you're not worshiping. And then you're just living in the world, following the schemes of the enemy. Or we can reverse that. He says you can not be conformed. And look how he says you're not conformed. When you transform by the renewing of your mind. What do you think he's referring to? The renewing of our mind in the scriptures? Growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in another letter, that's the transforming process. As we're doing that, we will start to align ourselves to God's will. We don't transform by looking at each other and making those comparisons and deciding, I'm going to be more like Susie. No, I want to be more like Harry. These are the people that seem to be godly. I'm going to do what they do. Uh, A.W. Tozer described something similarly when he said it would be like taking a room full of pianos and tuning them to one another. If you do that, you end up with a hopelessly out-of-tune group of pianos because everyone's a little different to begin with and there's no real clear standard there. So how would you know which piano is the right one? They'd all be a little out-of-tune. And you'd never have a hope to get any of them in tune. So Tozer says, no, what you do is you take a tuning fork. You strike the tuning fork and then you tune all of the pianos to that one fork. And the moment you do that, they will all be in tune with each other. Similarly, in the same sense as I think what James and Paul are talking about here, We aren't comparing our lives to one another and coming into this room to figure out who's got it together and who doesn't and let's figure out who to model after. We just end up with a room of differently tuned pianos. The Spirit, on the other hand, draws us to Christ. Christ is our tuning fork. And to the extent we each grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we all become more like Him. The moment we're closer to Him is the moment we're closer to each other. We all end up in tune, so to speak, with the Spirit if we're all going for the same target instead of to each other. But you have to be in a mindset of submission to God and in communal worship, at least periodically, in order for that process to really take hold. And the word of God makes it all possible, guides us to the to the standard. James gives us an example of this lifestyle in verses eight through ten. He says, people who draw near to God are the people who do these things. They cleanse their hands and they purify their hearts. This is another Levitical Jewish phrase. It means the sin inward and the sin outward. Cleansing your hands refers to outward sin. Purifying your hearts refers to inward sin. It's a whole process. You are putting aside those things in your life that are causing you to sin, whether it's thoughts and desires, whether it's actions and habits. You contend with them, he says. Don't be double-minded. Don't be sinners. Don't be hypocritical. 
Don't look at your life and say, you know, I'm not that bad. Let's be honest. We are bad. We're not just a little bad. We're terrible at times. But thanks be to God that by grace, we're not accountable to that sin eternally. But we are still accountable to him temporally. We still have a responsibility to live out a life that is a life of worship, of clean hands and pure hearts. He says it this way. Be mournful. Don't be happy. Be sad. Meaning, don't accept in ourselves this pattern of saying one thing and doing another or not doing anything for that matter. And think it's okay. Be sad. Be mournful. The word in my English version said be miserable. The word miserable in Greek means in distress. Don't be happy or even ambivalent over sin. Be mournful over it. Be distressed over it. Be terribly bothered by the fact that there is still sin in your life and in my life. There's no issue here with whether or not it will come back to haunt us in terms of judgment. That's been settled on the cross. But folks, don't let that fact cause you to be comfortable with remaining in sin. Those two things are not compatible. And I want to also address something that I think some people may have assumed out of those verses, which which is not true. James is not saying here that sinners have fun and Christians are miserable. Don't take it to the extreme and think, Well, if I'm enjoying something about my life, I've got a problem. I need to figure out a way to get rid of that and go back to being sad all the time. I've met Christians who are like that. I don't know if it's just their personality, but you'll find occasionally that Christian. You wonder, why would anybody want to be like you? You don't reflect the joy of Christ. You just seem unhappy all the time. But James here is saying that the heart attitude that the world has, which takes pleasure in sin, cannot be our heart attitude. Are there things in your life which you know are the wrong things to have in your life, and yet when you get a chance to do them once in a while, you secretly like it? Just a little cheating once in a while, and then I put it aside again. And, but that moment I get it, I can secretly enjoy it temporarily. If that's the view that we have, even for just moments, that's the view James says you've got to put away. You've got to put yourself in a point of view where you are mourning over that, not just after the fact, but going into it, so that it removes even the desire for it. Remember my analogy from a few weeks ago about swearing? Speech was the issue as James has gone over that, and I, I said that I used to swear you know, fairly frequently like any unbeliever would. And then I became a believer, and over time, God took that desire away, because as I tried to enjoy it or tried to do it, it stopped being fun. It started being really miserable. It made me feel bad about myself. It made me feel out of place with my walk, and and, and it just stopped feeling good. God took the pleasure away. Thanks be to God. But when you're still tempted by something and it hasn't turned that corner, maybe what he's waiting for is for us to say to ourselves, I shouldn't enjoy this anymore. I cannot let myself enjoy this anymore. It is wrong. I am not going to take joy in this anymore. It's the hard attitude that has to change before the obedience can change. Now, you may not have noticed something that James is doing here. He has snuck something in here very creatively and very powerfully. But if we miss it, we miss the real power of chapter 4 of James. Remember earlier in chapter 2, James says, we are to speak and act as those who will be judged by the royal law. You remember back in chapter 2, we looked at what the royal law was. It's the, the law that now governs the New Testament believer. We're not under the old law. We're not under the Ten Commandments. We're not under the law of Moses. All of that was set aside when Christ died. We are now under a new law, a law that is even more demanding and even more comprehensive. But it is a New Testament law. And it was the law Jesus gave us when he said, Love, your Lord, the God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He says, upon these two commandments, the entire law was written. And that becomes the guiding principle, or as James calls it, the royal law that guides our behavior now. That's what James said earlier in his book. But in chapter 4, James says to the church 
that they live in quarrels and disputes because they weren't living according to this law of faith. They weren't loving their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they certainly weren't loving their neighbors. He's begun to demonstrate what it means to fail and then again to succeed in meeting that law. So in the part of the chapter we've covered so far, look what he has described. He's described what it means to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means submit to him, know his decrees, make them our decrees, humble ourselves, he will exalt us. That's what it means to do the first part of the law. That's what he's been describing. And now, as he turns to the latter part of this chapter, he now addresses the second half of the law. The command to love our neighbors, to love them like we would love ourselves. Look what he says in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James now has set the framework up. James earlier has told us, here's what it means to be faithful to God, to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He set those principles out. Now he's turning to the second half. And here, by the way, is what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he starts again with speech as the starting point. It's interesting to me how much he rests on this issue of the mouth, of the tongue. It seems to all start and end there for him. In this case, it's about how we speak about our brothers and sisters in the faith. I think James is is probably referencing here back to the quarrels that started at the beginning of the chapter. It's not hard to imagine that maybe what started in this church, whichever churches he's thinking about, started because in the midst of their contending with one another over what they wanted, there was a little bit of talk going on as well. A little bit of uh, gossip, a little bit of accusations, you know, so-and-so and and miss so-and-so, and then that started to boil up. It seems like he's saying, when you speak against one another, you're starting this process. You're violating the royal law. He says, don't do it. Don't speak against your brother or sister. In Greek, that phrase literally means to speak down against. It's the same phrase that's used in 1 Peter 2.12 when Peter, and in that case, it's translated as the word slander. So it's slandering someone, speaking down against them. In other words, don't put someone down with your speech in the body of Christ. Now, we've all had that moment when we decided in our heart what somebody else's thoughts or words or actions meant, and we decided it was wrong, and we decided we were going to make that clear, either to them or usually to someone else. That's the violation of the second half of the, of the New Testament law. Now, look, he's not prohibiting legitimate criticism here. He's not saying you can never come to a point of levying a criticism against someone else in the faith. If you couldn't do that, you couldn't apply church discipline. You couldn't exhort people. You couldn't hold people accountable. That's not the problem here. And in fact, the Bible gives us clear methods for doing all of those things. Very clear guidance on how it is we're to deal with misbehavior in the body and do it in a biblically proper way. You do it privately in some cases, publicly in others, but there's always a way to do it. Here, James is talking about speaking negatively about a brother or sister simply because we don't like something about them. Usually in the context of a contention over something, right? Well, so-and-so doesn't like my idea for the building campaign, but, you know, he's always trying to get something for himself. That's not biblical discipline or criticism. That is just pure slander. When we speak in an unflattering way, James says we do three things to that person, or when we speak about someone in that way. First, he says we judge our brother or sister. And hateful, negative thoughts or statements about another in the faith is a form of judgment against them. 
we've made a judgment. We've come to some decision. And that is a sin. You either have a clear understanding of a problem, backed by proof, backed by witnesses, that goes against Scripture, in which case you take action to deal with it in a biblical way, or you don't do anything or say anything. It's the old adage of if you don't have something nice to say about something, don't say anything at all. That's the biblical issue here. If you think someone's doing something wrong and you have the backing to support that accusation and it is a problem that must be dealt with according to the Bible, then deal with it in the biblical way or just don't say anything at all. There's no in-between. We don't have the right to carp behind people's backs and say, I don't want to get them in trouble, but... And then we say what we say. No, you either take it the whole way or you go nowhere with it because anything in between is judging somebody without going through the biblical process of doing it properly. And that's a sin. That's the first thing we do wrong. Secondly, our speech itself is a violation of the royal law. It goes against the law, James says, because harmful speech violates the law. The law says, treat others with the love we would show ourselves. Do you walk around bad-mouthing yourself to other people in the body of Christ? Most people don't. You don't hear people doing that, right? Because we all love ourselves enough to hide those imperfections from other people. James says, if you turn that around and decide that for someone else those statements are okay... You just violate the law. Literally, we are breaking the very law that we are accusing our brother and sister of breaking. Finally, we place ourselves above the law as a judge. This is different than judging our neighbor. Judging our neighbor is an offense against them. Placing ourselves above the law is an offense against God himself because we are pretending the rules don't apply to us. We are pretending we are in his position and have the authority and the wherewithal to make these decisions on our own. That's a sin of hypocrisy. And James sets the record straight in verse 12. He says, there is only one God, and we are not him. And we please him when we keep his law, rather than making a law of our own or trying to judge our own. So James ends his letter then with two warnings. Now, the two warnings cover the end of this chapter and chapter 5. We're not going to do chapter 5, of course. Let's just look at the first of these two warnings briefly that finish the chapter. They both begin with the phrase, come now. So you'll find the second one in chapter 5 by looking for that phrase. And secondly, one deals with Jewish believers, a warning to the Jewish believer in the church. The second one deals with Jewish unbelievers. Those who may have attached themselves to the church or be friends with somebody or hear of this letter in some other context have heard these words from James, but yet do not know the truth of Christ and the gospel. James gives them a warning as well. Today we only deal with the first one, with the one for believers. In verses 13 through 17, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Here's the one that begins for the believer. Notice here again, though, the beginning of this sin is found again in a form of speech. James stays on this point throughout his letter. It is an issue of speech in, a, in the sense that I think we tell ourselves something. 
that we decide that we're going to go do this or we make plans. But it's a kind of telling. It's about a mindful thought. It may not be articulated verbally, but we say it to ourselves. This is done without consulting God. That's why it's sin. The problem here is not making plans. I've heard this taught in a variety of ways, and sometimes I wonder where people are going because they imply planning is the problem. Planning is not a problem. God is a God of order. And planning is a necessary discipline in leading an orderly and productive life. No one's going to deny that just because of James's comment here. That would make no sense. In Genesis, for example, God gave Joseph a detailed plan covering 14 years of his life through a process of dreams that involved fat and lean cows, if you know the story. And he expected Joseph to go off and do something about that plan for the next 14 years because that's why God gave him the idea. So planning is not the problem. It's not the enemy here. The issue is, where do we go for our plans? The man in verse 13, James says, is saying to himself what he wants to do. He's got plans. He's full of plans. He knows exactly what he's going to do, he says. But he's presumptuous because he decided what his plan would be without consulting God. It's his own plan. We're back to that step of pride again. We're back to the point where I'm not listening to God. It's not about his will. It's about mine. And so the plan is really a testimony against the God. I've been known to say that I don't like church five-year plans. You know, these things that churches will do where they try to plan out their future for, for some number of years. It's not necessarily because that's a bad thing. And it's certainly not because planning is a bad thing. I just said it wasn't a bad thing. The problem is that I'm not confident in most cases that the church had a revelation from God that extended five years in the future. And if they didn't, they're off on their own. If we're not following God's will in our planning, we're just coming up with it on our own. And we're back to James's problem here. Now, it is certainly possible that God can give a church, a pastor, a leadership team, five years of vision for how they are to live. And that's certainly possible. I'm not denying that possibility. I'm just questioning how often is that really what's happening Versus how often did somebody just arbitrarily decide five is a nice round number. Let's just go plan for five years. He doesn't do that for me very often. I may just be the only guy and I'm too thick and so he knows he can't do that for me. But I don't get five-year plans. I barely know what I'm going to do tomorrow, unfortunately. I wish I could be better at that. But what I have become confident in is that no matter how poorly I'm planning these things, when I lean on God, he seems to have the perfect plan in the end and it all works out. That's not, by the way, a defense of failing to plan. It's just to say... That if we're not confident on where God wants us to go, my rule of thumb is do the last thing he told you to do until you hear from him again. And keep doing it until you get new orders. And don't try to outthink him and outplan him. When we live in our own plans rather than his, we aren't living by faith anymore in God's word and in his will. We've set all that aside. We're back to living as the world lives. The world loves to make its own plans. And James says that that lifestyle is arrogant and boasting. Arrogant and boasting is a proud kind of life. We're, we're stupidly forgetting that he says we're just like a vapor. By the way, the word vapor in Greek, it's the word for the breath you see out of your mouth when it's cold outside. That's what the word means in Greek. How long does that last? That's how long we last in the flesh. God has numbered our days already, he tells us in Job. Why are we trying to outplan God? Instead, we should say, if the Lord wills. He says, say it this way. If the Lord wills. Now, let's be clear about what he expects here. Again, notice the process begins again with speech. And I think sin is often tied to speech. But sin doesn't end with speech. James is not expecting us to go around and start saying, 
If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if God wills. And suddenly that solves our problem. That's the beginning. That's the rudder. It sets the ship on the right course. But it's not the same thing as arriving on time and safely. I can't just suddenly start saying, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And suddenly that removes the sin of prideful living self-determination. I can still be very self-determined. I can still make my own plans. And then when I tell you about them, I say, if the Lord wills, here's what I'm going to go do. That's just mocking him. That's just superficially adding a few words on front of my plan and thinking that solves the problem. He's not saying you stop the sin with the speech. He's saying the speech is the first step toward a life that thinks like that speech. You have to finish the process. You have to go all the way through it. You have to not only say the words, but actually think like them, act like them. Tell yourself, you know, I was going to plan for next month, but I don't feel God showing me what next month is going to be yet, so I'm not going to plan for something I don't understand yet. I'm going to rest in his will, and today has enough worry of its own. I'll take care of things today. But if he gives you some vision that says, you know what, you're to go to the other side of the world, to Papua New Guinea, and you're to go be a church planner in Juarez, and here's how you're going to go do it, and you need to start planning and get your passport. You just got all you needed. Do it. But don't follow your own will Put some words in front of it and pretend it's God's will. Humble yourself. Don't sin against your brother. Sound advice from James this morning. Heavenly Father, for all the words that I have spoken this morning, Father, your words are so much better. So I pray, Father, that what's been heard most clearly, what's been heard loudly, have been your words out of Scripture this morning. And they have pierced our hearts. Perhaps they've confirmed that we have, in some cases, put our lives straight according to Scripture and we feel that encouragement. And, and then perhaps in other cases, Father, we've been brought to, to recognize our, our shortcomings and we leave today with a different sense of what to do. Either way, Father, we give you the glory and we thank you for that, for that word this morning. Let it be something, Father, that draws us closer to you. Bless our time in communion, Father. Let it remind us of why it is and how it is that we can even be here before you today as as your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.